Good morning, everyone. Uh, So we're going to be using John chapter 2 as a springboard for more of a doctrinal lesson. Um, Last week, we looked at 1 Kings 13, where Jeroboam had started some practices that were very similar to what God had lawfully designed for the temple and the priesthood from Levi. Um, And he sent a young prophet from Judah to contend with him and um, pronounce judgment on those things. And some of the points in that lesson were the importance of really understanding the truth. Obviously, in our conviction and our faith, we need to use our convictions and use what the Bible says to try to help others to find the truth. But it's also very critical that we ourselves are very rooted in truths that um, are not very similar to what we see in the world around us oftentimes. So uh, this lesson is going to be on the local church's purpose and its money. Um, A lot of times when thinking about this subject, I think it can feel like maybe if we focus on what God says about the local church's treasury, that, um, you know, it's like making too big of a deal out of things. But um, from my observation, from my experience, what a local church of believers think about what the Bible says about the treasury and on money, um, how they use their money, collect their money, spend their money, again, from the local church treasury, not just individually, makes a critical difference in the attitude that that church has toward God, toward his word, and just generally the atmosphere of faith that's able to exist within that body of believers. And so I have found that... um, this subject actually makes a very big difference in what a church does as far as its identity, its work, its purpose, and how a local church is able to be rooted in sound doctrine. So we'll see that as the lesson goes on. So um, turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. Again, um, what we're going to do is kind of look at this example in John 2 with Jesus and what he does in the temple and use the principles here to make some more practical applications to what the church is to do with its treasury, both in how it collects money locally and how it's meant to use its money um, in Scripture. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, the context for this is this is obviously John chapter 2 being the beginning of the gospel. In John's gospel, this is very close to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, We don't really get too much of of an impression here that Jesus has even hardly begun teaching and making himself known. Uh, The first thing we see before this is Jesus performing a very discreet miracle in Cana of Galilee at a wedding feast. Um, And so Jesus doesn't seem like at this point really has brought to himself much of a reputation through publicly teaching or publicly, publicly performing miracles. But it's the time of the Passover of the Jews. And so this would be a time when Jews from all over the world would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate what was one of the Jewish culture's most important holidays. And this would have been a time of great joy, great celebration. In the book of Deuteronomy, God would even tell Israel that when they came for the Passover, one of the main purposes was to rejoice with everybody else who was there. And so this is meant to be a time of great joy. And yet in this instance here, what I have on the board is that Jesus responds to what he finds in the temple with a very unique violence even. And we don't really see this in Jesus in any other context. 
Um, I'll mention this at the end of this this point here. Um, we see Jesus doing this twice in um, his ministry here at the beginning and then at the close of his ministry when he goes back to Jerusalem. But in verse four, he found in the temple, verse fourteen rather, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So I want you to imagine this scene. Jesus goes to the Passover when he enters into the temple complex, probably in the outer courtyard, uh, courtyard, which would have been called the courtyard of the Gentiles. He finds that there are people who are selling oxen, sheep, doves, and there's people who are working as money changers. Again, for people who would be traveling a long distance and need to exchange currency for the temple tax. So he finds all this business happening, and you imagine he observes this, takes note of it, and then he goes away, and he starts creating this whip, you know, this scourge of cords, you know, and he would have to kind of bundle these things together and tie them up, and then you imagine he comes out from whoever he was holding this and he starts whipping at the people and at the animals, forcibly driving them up and making a ruckus. He's grabbing the tables, he's throwing them over, he's pouring the money bags out. And you imagine the people are just in, in shock and he's telling them, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And you imagine how, how shocking this would be, right? that Jesus is making this scene and you imagine being one of his initial disciples here, you know, almost being taken aback and, you know, blown away that Jesus would be doing something just so seemingly ludicrous. But I want you to think how many people maybe were uncomfortable about this, but they weren't really sure, like, I mean, is this wrong? And so you just kind of end up walking past it or taking part, part in it. The priests and the leadership were obviously okay with this. I mean, you see in verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Uh, ironically, a very similar question they ask at the end of his ministry. And there was enough by this point to demonstrate that. Um, John the Baptist had been very openly preaching, very openly pointing to Jesus as the Christ. Jesus had disciples around him, so he wasn't just some rogue person all by himself doing random things. So they really did actually have enough to know that Jesus is, at the very least, someone special in their culture at this time. Um, but he gives them a, a difficult statement, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so he challenges them to think, to, um, like I've mentioned in the Bible classes recently, almost like to do their homework, to hold on to it. The disciples, they remember a scripture in verse 17. So it's interesting, the disciples don't say, what authority does Jesus have to do this? they actually remember a scripture that to them testifies to his authority. I'm going to turn to that really quick in verse um, 17. The scripture is Psalm 69, verse 9. Um, I want to show you a couple of extra things that are said in that context. Psalm 69 is um, one of the most intense psalms in the book of Psalms. And um, the Psalms is generally a very intense book of the Bible. There's a lot of emotion, but with that in mind, Psalm 69 is one of the most intense psalms written in the book. Um, there are some crucifixion uh, things that are said in this context as well. 
But I want you to look at verse 7. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of drunkards, of the drunkards. So do you see where this is sandwiched? You know, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, you'd think he would want to be very careful, you know, to slowly maybe cultivate his reputation, gain the respect of the Jewish people and their leadership. But Psalm 69, all around where it's zeal for your house has consumed me, what the disciples see in that is Jesus is losing his reputation and that he's even being estranged from his family, that he's willing to suffer incredible relationship losses because of his passion for God's things and God's ways. Um, So wait a think, if Jesus was so indignant about this, if this was so enraging for him, then why was this being tolerated? And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 14 because this may be a little more complex than it seems on the surface. So turn to Deuteronomy 14, keep your finger in John 2, because with this we'll need to kind of um, quickly make some references between these two passages. But in Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 22, there are instructions to Israelites where if they live too far away from Jerusalem to bring animals and things like that themselves, what they are allowed to do, what God actually commands them to do, is to sell things and actually just take money with you. And look at verse 24. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far from you, or rather too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. Notice this, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. And by the way, that's, these are sacrificial things. Animal offerings were accompanied by drink offerings of wine and strong drinks. These are, these are all things that would be used in worship and sacrifice or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God, and rejoice, you and your household. And if you look back at John chapter 2, so just kind of catch up on the board here, so if anyone was too far from Jerusalem, God gave them the liberty and even instructed them, you know, take money with you then and just buy what you need there to worship. And if you notice in verse 14, what were they selling? Oxen, sheep, doves. Doves were also an animal used to bring to the altar. So these, these were things that God in Deuteronomy 14 explicitly told them to buy when they get there. So what's the problem? And the money changers, people would come from a long way away and there was a specific currency used for the temple tax and people weren't supposed to come empty-handed. So I mean, okay, it seems like what they're doing there is something they've been actually specifically instructed to do and authorized to do even. So, again, why did this enrage Jesus so much, right? Another aspect of this. It's not as if people weren't worshiping. I mean, they're still making the right sacrifices, so they would still be going to the priests, lawfully using the animals that God required. 
And they could even do it with the right heart and the right intention. So it's not as if this was undoing the system of worship that God was looking for with Israel. And again, these were things that were even being used for worship. So here's what I want to present you with. Were these things to be done in the temple grounds? Was this to become something that within the courtyard of the temple on temple grounds, that God intended that within the temple they would be doing this business and carrying out these instructions? No. Every aspect of what the temple was and what it was for was very holy. And everything that it was and everything that it was for was very explicitly outlined by God and very serious that it all be preserved in that way. And bringing in business for profit, seeing the traveling and the travelers that would come to Jerusalem and saying, why don't we just do this in the temple? I mean, they're coming into the temple. They need to get you know, the animals for the temple. They've got to exchange their money to pay the temple tax. It's easier to do it this way, right? So I need to think, just because it's easier to do it this way, does that make it right? And something that God had told them to do should have been done still. Yeah, it needed to be done, Deuteronomy 14, but in a different context. So not among the priesthood or the Levites or temple grounds, but somewhere else in Jerusalem. You know, just not in the temple, right? So something that was good and even commanded became something that actually enraged Jesus because it was being done in the wrong context, right? So again, the point of this is how this relates to a local church and how the structure of a local church with the reality of money being involved with a collection and spending, things can become very business-like very quickly if we're not careful. And so you notice again what Jesus says in verse 16, stop making my father's house a place of business. In Luke 19, so if you want to just kind of turn there, it's only a few pages back, is where Jesus does this at the end of his ministry. And I think it gives greater insight to why this made Jesus so indignant and zealous. In Luke chapter 19, 45 through 46, Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. The temple was supposed to be a place where when you come in there, what you are seeing is the character of God. And God, we need to trust that he's able to reveal himself, his ways, his methods, his commands, his instructions. But what were people seeing when they came into the temple? They weren't seeing God and God's character, his grace. They weren't seeing things of faith. They were seeing business being done. Imagine how loud this was, the animals, the marketplace this was created, the environment it would create. So again, this is something that God said needed to be done, but this was not only the wrong context, but that context was so wrong that, again, it enraged Jesus to see it happening in that context. It's a call to be cautious, right? That systems that God creates that are meant to be spiritually centered and that are meant to be holy and unique, they can be corrupted by the poison of an industrious, business-like mentality. And so we just need to be very careful, especially when we get to matters of money, collecting money, spending money. One more thing about this that I think is worth noting um, that I think enhances the danger of the problem that we need to be aware of. This happened twice in his ministry. 
How long do you think it took before Jesus drove them out the first time that they all just come right back and just start doing it again, right? Because again, you imagine like after Jesus leaves, it's like, you imagine they start talking together. Deuteronomy 14, guys, we, we got to do what we got to do. Like, come on back. Because you know, they don't get it, right? But Jesus wasn't just seeing what Deuteronomy 14 said, but what was the purpose of God's temple? What was the purpose of why the temple existed and what they were to be doing there specifically? There needed to be a separation of context with these things. So again, I think the fact that you see them coming right back and doing the same thing again and Jesus having to do the same thing again shows how drawn we can be to make these mistakes very absent-mindedly and carelessly. So for the rest of the lesson, what I'd like to do is use those principles and I hope that these principles help us take God's instructions for a local church very seriously and give us a great sense of caution to just want to be very careful to stay within the boundaries of what God says a local church is to do with the reality of the fact that there is money involved in a local church's work and the spending of money. So I want to start with collecting money. Um, 1 Corinthians 16 is really going to be the basis for this point. You know that the church, the local church, is not a business. It should not be operated as a business. It should not be looked at as a business. And how a church collects money and spends its money should not be business-like. It should be the way that God commands it to be. 1 Corinthians 16 is a very critical place that gives very clear, very simple instructions that the rest of this sermon will be based on. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So this outlines in these two verses how a local church is commanded both to collect and spend money from its treasury. And one thing you see um, in verse 1 throughout the Corinthian letter, this is a very doctrinal letter, by the way, um, Corinthians really deals a lot with doctrinal matters with the church and with us individually. Um, And so Corinthians, you find a lot of things like the Lord's Supper. How are we to take the Lord's Supper together? What's that to look like? Why do we do that? Uh, Lots of things like that are in the Corinthian letter. And so here we find a doctrinal instruction that in the letter, you'll see it many times where Paul will say, this is the same thing I teach in other churches or as I teach in every place. And the same thing here. This wasn't just something unique to the Corinthian church, but this was a common teaching that Paul brought wherever he went. So just like he instructed the churches of Galatia, so they are to do also. And again, I would argue that this instruction and being extremely careful with it is very critical in protecting the local church's overall identity, its purpose, its structure, and its work. And again, if it seems like we're making too much out of something that is seemingly simple, from, from my experience and observation, how a local church views money and handles these things makes an enormous difference in the atmosphere of faith, godliness, and reverence that is able to exist among a body of believers. So it's critical that we look at this instruction and are careful with it. So based on this, how should a local church collect money? And I want to present with this and then how we spend money with maybe a situation. I want you to imagine 
um, a small church like us, but let's say it's a church with elders. So let's say there's a church of 20 people. They've got three elders, and it's a struggling church. They're struggling financially. And so the elders get together, and they have a meeting. How can they increase their treasury so they have more spending money in their treasury? Well, here's some ideas of things that I've seen done both in churches that have the name Church of Christ or churches in the world, things I've either seen myself or heard of. How about a garage sale? Maybe if we consistently do garage sales and sell merchandise, maybe then you know, we can bolster the income of the church's treasury maybe a couple hundred dollars per month if we do something like that. How about community events? You know, maybe we can sell tickets. We can offer food and stuff like that and fun, and we sell tickets to people, and we take income from the profit of the sales of tickets along with the food or anything else that we're selling. And then we can also maybe get a bigger name in the community and people can see that, hey, we're here. Here's where we're meeting in the community and people can be more aware of those things. Maybe we can rent out parking. You know, sometimes uh, a church's building is located next to like a fairgrounds or a school, you know, and maybe we can get like maybe $500 per month extra if what we do is we rent out our parking lot to people and they can use our parking for a small cost. How about building an advertising billboard on property? You know, maybe the small church, their building is located next to a major highway and uh, they're offered that, you know, they'll give them $1,000 per month if they build a billboard and allow for advertising on their property. It's a lot of money. Maybe a cell phone tower on a steeple. Um, there's some states where a church is building um, to be um, built by regulation or code or whatever, it has to have a steeple. And sometimes a church is offered a large sum of money if a um, provider like Verizon or Sprint can put like a cell phone tower on their steeple and use it to provide service to their area, right? And they'll offer them an enormous amount of money for that. So what do you think about these things, all of these options? Does that fit what 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 is saying? I would argue that all of these things, you can just like Deuteronomy 14 and you can justify, you know, it's just, it makes things easier and why not offer these things in the temple grounds? I mean, literally, this is, where, this is where they're coming to offer these things, right? So again, without being rooted in a caution and a reverence of seeing Jesus was indignant about something that was happening with money and merchandise that they were all tolerating, but he was deeply, deeply indignant about it. We have to be so, so careful that if we can't find any example or instruction or authority to raise money in these ways, then this is what we've got to stick with. And so this is where we'll be putting it all together here. So this is something that's to be done on Sundays. So you notice in verse 2, on the first day of the week. So this isn't something we do at every assembly. So on Wednesdays, we don't, you know, collect uh, uh, a collection of money on Wednesdays or when we have gospel meetings we don't have a collection or a call for a collection at our gospel meetings. When we have Bible studies outside of these assemblies, we don't ask people for money at those Bible studies because this is something that is to be done on the first day of the week. And that's it. That's what we find. So not at every assembly. And it's to be done as each individual in the church prospers and determines for themselves. So we see this further in 2 Corinthians. Paul illustrates this or expounds on this instruction in the second letter where he's encouraging them to finish the work that they're beginning here 
in sending money to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And that's where he says, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, not under compulsion or necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. One thing that I see, again, this is just my observation. It seems like a very popular thing that happens in churches right now um, is like a promise pledge thing where people write out a promise of weekly giving for the next year and then they submit it. And then the church is able to, the leadership like collects those pledge promises. They kind of have an idea of how they can budget things. Um, that's not at all what's going on here, right? And I think we need to be really careful to see through that and not just think that's some noble thing. So churches, sometimes they get too big for their britches, if I can say it that way, where they're not limiting themselves based on what the membership is actually giving, but they have these grand ideas of, oh, we want to do this big work, and, and we want to do this big work, and what we need is we need a commitment that you're going to give such and such an amount of money so that we can live up to these big ideas, these grand things that we want to spend our money on. Those things can sound really good. And you can think, wow, now I really want to give. There's these huge things this church is doing. But there's just a humility and there's just an intimacy and a quietness, a discreetness to God's design where the reality is we just need to limit ourselves to what the members are able to give and of what they freely give of their own choosing. And we just allow ourselves to be limited by that reality. We don't pressure people to give more than they're able to or make someone feel ashamed for what they're giving. Again, it's something that each individually is giving as they're prospering, right? So another problem with those pledges is what if you lose your job? What if your financial situation, maybe in a different way, changes dramatically? Are you prospering the same at that point? So what you're able to give, we don't know the future. I may not be able to give the same amount three months from now or one month from now, right? And so again, this is something where people aren't being given just base expectations, give this much for this amount of time, but you know, whatever they can give each week, they give that freely of their own heart. And, well, just to reemphasize, this is a collection of the local church not taking things from people who are not Christians, not raising money from the community around them. This is Christians on the first day of the week who are a part of that church that are giving of their own means of that local church alone. So not, again, community events or anything like that. So how about spending of the treasury? How can we make sure that what we're spending and how we're using money is also cautiously within the boundaries that God assigns here in this text? So how should a local church spend its money? And again, just to reemphasize, we're not talking about an individual's money, right? So just like with Deuteronomy 14 and the temple, they had the freedom to do what they wanted to do outside of the context of the temple. The temple was a very special place with a very special purpose. What an individual could do or what they did outside of the context, hey, free game, right? So we're not talking about an individual. We are talking about spending the money that is the local church's treasury collected from the Christians who are meeting together. Um, in the New Testament, the, the local church's treasury was only used for the needs of the saints. I'm going to put some scriptures on the board here. But before I do that, I want to use another illustration. Why do you imagine a church of like 400 individuals? They have a big eldership. Let's say the eldership is, you know, 10 elders. And they're making like $30,000 per month over their expenditures. So over like building costs, you know, other things like that. They're making like $30,000 more than their expenditures every month. 
So they're getting together thinking, okay, well, wow, we have all this extra money. We need to be spending on something. So what should we do? Well, maybe they could spend it on supporting a Christian college, right? Maybe they could send the money to um, an organization that works to evangelize. You know, so you know, we send our money to that evangelism organization and then they use that money and they spread the gospel that way. Or maybe we use the money to, or they use the money rather, to support you know, an orphanage or a charity and they start thinking, you know, we could invest like $10,000 a month supporting these institutions that are doing these works that we want to support. Or they could think like, well, our building doesn't have a kitchen. Maybe we should build a kitchen attached to our building and start hosting meals and things like that as we worship. Or maybe, you know, people would be more drawn to worship with us if we built for ourselves a playground outside and a basketball court, and that would maybe make us a little bit more appealing to the people in our community if we offered those things and had those things available to us, right? So are those things, though, just to ask that, when you look at verse uh, 2, what the collection is for, or rather verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints, is that, does that seem to fit what just generally is said about the church's collection and its purpose there? Again, the New Testament, in the New Testament, the local church treasury was only used for the needs of saints. So obviously I'm not going to have you turn to all these scriptures um, but I just want to emphasize that scriptures to look at here and through the rest of the lesson are really all just to support what 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2 is saying, as simple as that is. So again, these aren't saying necessarily anything new. It's just supporting that point, giving evidence for it. So it's never used for non-Christians. In Acts chapter 2, when the church starts, all those who had believed were sacrificing property and selling property and goods and pooling them together as anyone would have need. And what we see there in that context, that was believers helping needy believers. Chapter 4, we see the same thing. It says those who believed, again, were doing the same thing. Acts chapter 11, where it again talks about the need that would arise in Jerusalem. They determined to send aid to the saints, but it was for the relief of the needy Christians in Jerusalem specifically there. Romans chapter 15, verse 25, Paul, again, a lot of the New Testament about this need in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, verse 26, Paul is talking about his traveling to Jerusalem, and he says he's bringing aid to the saints. In the ESV translation of that verse, he's bringing aid to the saints specifically. And the next chapter, or next verse over, it says the poor among the saints, again, referring to the same need. Chapter 16 here, it's the collection for the saints, 2 Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9, continuing uh, this instruction says it's for the support of the saints again. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, we see that the, the collection could also be used for needy, godly Christian widows as well. And again, it's very carefully clarified there, very carefully. These are not just Christian widows but they also are widows who are very godly and meet specific qualities to be supported by the treasury. So that's what we see as a pattern is we never, ever, ever in the New Testament, not even one time is it ever said or implied that a local church's treasury was ever used for the aid of someone who is not a Christian, right? So there's that. But there's limits on that. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, I think it's actually chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 
says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So there may be a Christian or a group of Christians where they're in great need, but they could be working. And in that instance, there's a limit here where we're not to support things that we ought not biblically support. So if someone's not willing to work, he is not to eat, and we are not to help in that need, even though it may appear to be dire if someone is in a hard situation, but they could work and they're just not willing. First Timothy 5 um, brings up the stipulation that family first, right? So if, if there's a need, but there's family members that can take care of that need, really they should be the ones to fill in that need. So 1 Timothy 5.16 says, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened. Talking about the church treasury being used to fill the need. So that may assist those who are widows indeed. And widows indeed, that's implying that these are widows who don't have anybody else to support them. And so it falls on the church then to help and support them financially. We also see in the New Testament similarly, again, with supporting needs among saints, the supporting of preachers financially and the preaching of the gospel. So just a couple of places that demonstrate this. In 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul is talking about his right as an apostle and proclaiming the gospel to be financially supported for that, it says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And we see an example of this in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul uh, shares the Philippians that nobody else was helping him but them alone at one point. It says, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So again, the local church using its treasury to help support Paul in the proclamation of the gospel in different regions. And then just one more thing in terms of what qualifies within that umbrella of meeting the needs of the saints um, I think that would also include then the need to accomplish the work that God assigns a local church to do. So this would be things like in Hebrews 10 and in other places, a local church is commanded to assemble. And so spending money then on the things that help us accomplish that would be authorized. Things like having a building, paying rent for a building and a property. If the church needs to assemble, then it is a need to provide a place where we can do that together commanded to sing in 1 Corinthians 14 in the context of an assembly. So if we're commanded to sing together, then to buy songbooks and materials for singing, that would fall under the realm of a need that we have as a local church. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, we're to assemble and take the Lord's Supper together. And so what about expenses for buying bread and grape juice, things like that, or trays when we used to use those things? That would fall under the umbrella of there's a need where God tells us that as a local church, we are to be doing these things together then the treasury then would fit with meeting that need that we have as a local body. So just a couple of summarizing principles. That really, to me, um, not in the most exhaustive way, but generally, that's what we see in the Bible. Um, so we never see the treasury used then to fund social activities either. Um, so like building a kitchen onto the building you know, this is why we don't have a kitchen installed in this building. You know, this is an old building, so, you know, whatever. But um, we're not going to be building a kitchen onto the building, even if we can afford it, because the church's work together wasn't to fund social activity or use the treasury to support those things. That's just not what we see within the realm of what a local church did with its treasury. So not supporting social activities, not supporting community events or meals, um, 
but that it would also include not supporting institutions like orphanages and things like that. You know, and I've heard many times in talking with others about these things and we're having to, you know, really study it and um, trying to present these things, I've often heard it replied that it's very cold-hearted, that a local church, you know, you're not going to support orphanages, you're not going to support these good institutions that are doing things that the Bible tells us to do, like helping orphans, helping widows. But when you think about this, a lot of us, I think, have, you know, a part of our um, financial accounts with banks reserved for something specific, right? Like some of us might have like an emergency fund and you don't use that emergency fund for buying your meals every day for lunch. You don't use that for just buying new shoes or something, right? That's if there's some kind of catastrophe and you have this reserved amount of money for a very specific reason. So we understand that, right? And I think similarly, God with the local church specifically has a fund that's intended for a very specific purpose. And what this does is it gives a clear separation between what the local church is called to do and what an individual has the responsibility to do, right? So what the local church is not to use its treasury for, then individuals need to step up and they need to take the responsibility to fill in those gaps. So if there's a needy person who is not a Christian, what are we to do? If we're to abide by what is instructed in the New Testament, it's not that we take money out of the treasury, but individually, we could even talk together and say, hey, this person has this need. Let's see what we can do about this. Individually, we can talk about it. We can even pool money together individually outside of the context of the church's treasury, right? Or if we want to eat together, right? Well, let's just, we can talk about that individually and uh, someone can even choose to cover the meal for everybody or anything like that, right? But that's not something that we see is authorized for a local church to use its treasury for. Or orphans and orphanages, again, that's not something that the local church can do with its treasury, but individually we have total freedom. Something I wanted to bring up on that note is um, a lot of you have heard of sacred selections, like Phoebe and Anna were adopted through sacred selections, and that's just really kind of organized and run by just a couple of individuals. Um, Dana, the kind of head of that organization for adoption. Um, she's a Christian who believes in these things. And there are churches that are not sound congregations that have sent money to her from their treasury. And she will actually send the money back and say, no, we're not taking money from a local church's treasury for this. We'll take individuals, but not from a local church's treasury. And oftentimes they'll say, okay. So they'll divide up the same amount with individuals and send it. But... Um, if you guys don't know, Sacred Selections has funded the adoption for hundreds and hundreds of kids. So it's not as if not doing things this way all of a sudden means that Christians can hardly make a dent in adoption and things like that. Uh, again, when Christians put their mind to it, I think there are very, very effective things that can be done that keep us within the realm of what God has instructed on multiple levels. And I think what this does ultimately is it protects the identity of the church again, but it also protects the discreteness and the humility that God intended for generosity. That generosity is intended to be something that is discreet, behind the scenes, very lowly. And God's design very carefully protects that fulfillment of command. Um, so again, uh, the title of the lesson with the whole point of this is how can we make sure we're protecting the purpose of the local church with the same passion that Jesus had for the purpose of the temple? 
And how can we make sure when we're dealing with money that we don't get drawn into a business-like mentality with it, but we stay first and foremost with what God says and what we see in Scripture? So I know this hasn't been a lesson that's really been centered on principles of salvation and sin, um, but if you're here this morning and you are convicted of your need to obey the gospel and be brought into the kingdom of God, I would certainly urge you to come forward and respond to the gospel this morning. Or if there's any other need that you have spiritually that we can assist you with, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.